Welcome to the Defence Forces podcast brought to you by the Defence Forces Public Relations Branch. Hello and welcome to the Irish Defence Forces podcast. My name is Captain Keen Clancy and on today's special episode we're speaking to Colonel Retired George Curtin and Colonel Retired Richard Heaslip about Irish involvement in Congo in late August into September 1961. With regard to Congo, a lot of our listeners will be familiar with the action at Jadabal. However, today's episode is going to focus specifically on actions associated with Elizabethville and on the story of Trooper Patrick Patrick Mullins. Welcome on to the show, sirs. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you. Um, I suppose it, it, it's, it's important to stress at the outset as well that, that we're looking at it today from a specifically academic perspective and, and while, uh, while neither of our guests today actually uh, served as part of the mission in the Congo at the time, you spent a lot of your service serving with Congo veterans and have, have spent a lot of time studying the actions from, from an academic perspective. So I suppose to start off the, the, the episode, uh, I think a question for, for yourself, uh, Colonel Curtin, sir. Um, could you give us an outline of the background uh, to the situation in Congo in 1961 and maybe an outline of the importance of, of Katanga province? I suppose the Congo became independent at the end of June of 1960. And it probably was the most unprepared country in the history of mankind for decolonization. And uh, the UN plan was for two missions, a civilian mission and a military mission, and the function of the, the civilian mission was to actually to start running, take over and run the Congo because there's nobody, none of the Congolese were prepared. Political activity was only allowed midway through 1957. The structure of the political parties and organizations was based on a tribal basis. So the UN went in there with an idea to, to run the country and every agency of the United Nations was involved, right through from air traffic control to health to education to transport to banking to the economy, basically. And the purpose of the military mission was to have lightly armed troops to maintain a safe and secure environment, maintaining law and order. In the words that were used at UN headquarters and in Dáil Éireann when we're debating the deployment of the troops was operations of a policing nature. So very soon, as I say, at the end of June, independence kicked in, and 11 days later, Moshit Chumba, the leader of Katanga, he declared independence, and that caused a huge problem for central government, caused a huge problem for the UN. Now, just to describe, to describe the province of Katanga, it's about the size, marginally smaller than Spain, population of 1.6 million Africans and about 44,000, uh, mainly European, but non-Africans. Um, it, 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 it was um, a problem. And from the word go, Chombe refused entry to the UN. They wasn't going to allow them to deploy troops. And that took the Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld to go to the Congo and negotiate with, with Chombe. And, and by the 12th of August 1960, he was allowed to lead in just two companies of Swedish troops into Elizabethville. Thereafter, then, the UN deployed to Kamina Base and they deployed to the northeast of the province, centred around Albertville. The... Um, the province of Katanga was the wealthiest province in the Congo. Huge, huge deposits of minerals, everything from gold to silver, uranium, cadmium, uh, in particular copper. And the mining company was known as Union Mineria do Hout Congo, UNMK. And they were a multinational corporation with American, Belgian, British and French interests. And they were bankrolling Chamba and his breakaway regime. Uh, Chamba had 
not just financial backing, but he had political backing of Belgium in particular. And that mining company has been described as being a state within a state. And he bankrolled the, 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 uh, the whole breakaway state. He paid for the mercenaries. They paid for the mercenaries. And in 1961, in excess of 37 million US dollars was paid, not into the central Congolese government exchequer, but to the breakaway state of Katanga, and that was part of the problem. Um, by 1961, the UN had deployed, and the Katanga command was divided into three sectors. Sector A was up headquartered in Albertville, up on the, sh the shores of Lake Tanganyika, and had a number of, of uh, posts, like Niemba, that we well known to us. They also were down in Minono. And in that area, they had, from the time of the 33rd Battalion, they had negotiated a, a sort of an area of an, what they called a neutral zone, an area of separation between the incoming National Congolese Army, the ANC, the Gendarmerie, and the third party to that conf conflict was the Blue Tribe. Sector B was based in Elizabethville, and in 1961, they were just based in Elizabeth and nowhere else. Uh, they would have had something just less than 2,000 combat troops. Sector C was at Kamina base. This was a vast uh, military base built by, by, the, um, by the Belgians, stretching over about 100 square, square miles. And in the, at that time, they had about 440-odd uh, combat troops. 333 of those were Irish of the 1st Infantry Group. So that was the phase uh, is, is set in. The first Irish troops to deploy to Sector B into Elizabethville were the 34th Infantry Group. In, uh, in January of 1961, and they handed over to the 35th Battalion in, in around May, June of 1961. And they, in, they, they were there, and you had still the two companies of Swedes. You had the um, 34th Battalion redeployed from Camina Base into Elizabethville piecemeal. Later on, they were, they were joined by two uh, Indian battalions from the Indian contingent, the Dagra and the Gorka battalions. Their role of the 34th Battalion that was inherited by the 35th Battalion was basically looking after the airport. The airport was the main uh, lifeline to get into, into Katanga province, in through Elizabethville, and that was the importance. Elizabethville was the epicentre of everything that happened in the province of Katanga. Right, sir. And just from the perspective of... Um of sort of the, the secession of Katanga from a UN perspective, was was the the kind of goal of the UN being here was it was it to 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 reunite Congo Congo and Katanga or 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 to calm tensions or that just abroad what was what was the the end goal that was that was hoped to achieve? I suppose as, after independence with the breakaway of Katanga and and that wasn't part, that was part of the problem. But throughout Katanga, there was there was. The whole country just descended into chaos. Politically, I said they were unprepared. Kasavuvo, the president, sacked Lumumba, who was the prime minister. Lumumba sacked Kasavuvo. Then the chief of staff was a man called Mobuto. He, he then declared a coup. So you, you had four entities. You, you had the presidency, you had the prime minister, you had, you had the chief of staff and parliament, each making demands on the UN. It was total, absolute total chaos at this stage. So the problems for the UN came about on the 24th of February 1961, in that one of a succession of UN security resolutions moved the, the mandate from UN from maintaining a safe and secure environment to allow the UN civilians carry out their civilian mandate, but to maintaining the territorial integrity of the whole of the Congo. So basically, UN got suckered in from being a peace, 
keeping into war fighting because right. of that particular resolution. And remember, this was the second ever UN armed mission. Before that, in 1956, we had the United Nations Emergency Force that came into the Sinai. That was a small-scale operation uh, with the agreement, obviously, after the Suez Crisis when the British, the French and the Israelis and then <laughs> invaded Egypt in the Sinai Peninsula, UNF, what became UNF-1 was set up. And that was the only previous experience the UN had of peacekeeping. UN, every world leader, everybody was unprepared, were unprepared for what happened in the Congo. And particularly the, Congo, the department of the Congo then was, Dag Hammarskjöld was in his second tour of duty, if you like, as the UN Secretary General. And he wanted to leave his, his legacy. He wanted to sort the Congo. And UN New York was remotely controlling what was happening on the ground. They were telling people on the ground what, what was really happening on the ground. Yeah. That was part of the problem. It sounds like an extremely complex, complex situation, situation sir. From, from your perspective, uh, Colonel Heesby, sir, just the significant events that were occurring for the 35th Infantry Battalion at this time as, as they took over, as we discussed in the 34th, and having Elizabethville as a centre point, can you kind of, kind of give us an outline of those significant events? Before we go to that, uh, just... Uh, Everybody was on a steep learning curve, and so were the troops. And uh, the 35th Battalion were um, no strangers to that concept either. They were learning as they go. They were they had replaced the um, the 34th Battalion in Elizabethville and continued uh, what was it effectively a brigade level operation in. Um, in the, the, the city, which, as George indicated, was an epicenter strategically, uh, militarily, politically, uh, as to what was happening in Katanga. 35th Battalion came in, did what uh, battalions do, secured itself, prepared its defensive positions in, in its camp, etc., and it, it undertook a range of patrols and the urban and rural patrols um, to familiarize themselves with the operational area. <coughs> and. They came in in July, and they had a kind of they were easing into their operations and uh, becoming familiar with their um, the area of likely deployment in the city. Again, emphasizing there are four battalions in the city, and controlled by uh, Katanga Command through uh, Sector B uh, HQ. And but the personality of the military in uh, Elizabethville is kind of a bit dominated by the Indian uh, brigade commander um, Raja, and that headquarters were drafting the um, plans, the operational plans for uh, the the force at its disposal across the province, and of course the headquarters in, of Sector B were adjusting that for uh, the the area its area of responsibility, namely the city of uh, Elizabethville and its environs, and. These tasks then were given as missions to the particular battalion to be part of the overall uh, concept of uh, operations that were happening in the city. And there are three operations which are worthy of mention in respect of the demands they made on the, um, on the 35th Battalion. The first one was the, uh, there was a patrol to an area called uh, Delolo. It was about Round trip from Elizabethville, it was uh, about 1,600, uh, 1600 kilometers and <clears throat> over uh, a varying road network. But um, 
This patrol was scheduled to go out for seven days, starting on the 23rd of uh, August, to rescue a white uh, missionary family that was uh, in Delolo. They were successful in that operation, and in the course of the operation, they lost one uh, armoured car through going off the road, and uh, it was a rather hectic patrol, 17 vehicles in it, full spectrum of um, resources such as comms and engineers and, and, and that. But, uh, and a company provided a platoon in, in that um, patrol and the cavalry provided a number of armoured cars for the uh, operation to secure the patrol. They went over very rough routes along the way. And um, as I say, one of the cars was lost and uh, had to be abandoned, stripped and left there. And... What people will remember of this patrol was that it was successful, but the heat, the travel fatigue, together with the restricted food, water, etc., all combined to make it a, a grueling patrol, and and it's in that way it's remembered by the uh, by the participants. Yeah. Now this, they just come back to base when the next major operation is being uh, planned, and this one was significant, and that was Operation Rum Punch, which was scheduled for the 28th of August. The Delola Patrol had been called back early to allow for the fact that resources were limited, and uh, that kicked off on the uh, 28th of August, and the objective was focused on the mercenaries. They were to um, find them, arrest them, and then, well, detained them was the word used, and then they were to be expelled from the, the province. And that was done. And in that operation, all the uh, companies of the 35th Battalion were involved, usually with support also from the armoured car group. And I suppose, sir, just th- these were the mercenaries employed by the Katanganese government as a, as a de facto yes. as an army well, for them. Yes, the um, mercenaries really... Um, start hitting the headlines in the Congo. But uh, they were providing training and expertise and really were the backbone of the gendarmerie uh, forces. Yeah. If we just come in there, the, the term mercenaries is used in all of our unit histories, There's in all of the UN reports, but there are different categories of mercenaries in that there were quite a number of these. Uh, the, you're talking about a figure about 500, 550, and I think probably maybe one-third of those were actually... Uh, Belgian seconded officers and senior NCOs, warrant officers, uh, the rank of adjutant, but they were seconded by Belgium to support the gendarmerie at this stage. They were paid for and pensioned by the, by the government. Oh, okay. they, they, were, they weren't soldiers for hire. Yeah. So that, that's, that distinction has to be made. It's very important. I, I mentioned early on about political and financial support. That's part of it. Yeah. That was part of the problem. Yes. Uh, they were detained the Irish battalion detained 41 in that operation and uh, then they were went into the process of being expelled from the process from the province there was no control of them once they'd left they made their way back and uh, took their place back in their units as would be proved subsequently uh, during other operations but uh, this operation um, rum punch was considered very successful by all in the military and all the participants in it. They, they, uh, there was no great opposition to them as they um, performed their, their detention of the uh, particular individuals. And 
effectively then they they uh, they detained and gone out and now they sat back and i i believe un was overconfident in uh, as a consequence of this particular operation it had run very smoothly and there had been no casualties based on that the next phase of operation almost a, a part two was to be operation mortar in um which ran from the 13th of September to the 20th of September, uh, as events would prove. And the objective of this operation, a bit like the, the first operation, there was elements of rung punch in what this operation was going to, to do, except that this was focused on arresting and detaining named VIPs of Chombe's cabinet and uh, also on securing uh, particular locations uh, that were uh, useful for propaganda purposes by the um, by the Katangese authorities. They uh, they were these were, were to be occupied. So the focus was on um, arresting a particular VIP political VIPs and particular um, installations. The Radio Katanga and the post office were important communication installations that they were focusing on, and in effect. Operation Mortar, viewed in present terms, would be seen as being uh, a brigade-level operation uh, fighting in a built-up area, FIBOA operation, um, that nobody was prepared for. Um, the operational environment of Elizabethville, you got to consider it, it was relatively modern city with the mix of um, shantytown and... Um, uh, very European level uh, our, uh, buildings. And it was laid out on a north-south axis, geometric sort of pattern. But central to it all was a railway line that effectively ran north-south uh, through the city and it divided into east and west. It made communication from the east side of the city to the west side of the city very important. And it put a particular focus on an area that comes important in this is the tunnel, an area that was going to feature in Operation Mortar and would subsequently at a, at a later battalion later in December of the year would again feature as a, a major critical point. The operation order for the uh, Operation Mortar um, was given out at a, a, an O group and the 35th Battalion, effectively their mission would be uh, that it, at 0400 hours on the 13th of September, the 35th Battalion was to seize, hold and control specified locations and detain named Tangan VIPs. Each of the infantry companies of the battalion, sorry, preceding this, A Company had uh, been dispatched to uh, to Jadaville. So the battalion was had only two rifle companies uh, for its operation. And each of the companies was assigned uh, an armoured car section to assist them in their operation. The other elements of the armoured car group, three armoured cars were sent to the under command, the Indian battalions, and they were involved in very heavy fighting subsequently. Um, on the day, the operation was quite successful, in, in that it took the locations it was required to take. None of the VIPs were uh, captured. They, uh, they had advanced knowledge of what was happening, and they disappeared. So effectively, 
you end up at 0400 hours that the the operation kicked off. Just just as we're talking about Operation Morrison, before we kind of get into the meat of exactly kind of what happened, how does Operation Morrison, because you mentioned, uh, Colonel Heesmaster, that there was sim- a similar similar objectives between um, Operation Morrison and Operation Rum Punch. Can, can, can you outline the kind of main differences, uh, sort of, between, between, say, Rum Punch and, and Morrison in, in that sense? Can yeah. you take that, George? I will, certainly, yeah. The, uh, for Operation Rum Punch, the battalion commander left from Colonel McNamee had all of his assets. He had his 10 armoured cars for that particular operation, and in addition, he had one company from the, the Indian Dogra Battalion. Now, when... For uh, for mortar, the gendarmeries were forewarned. All the politicians were forewarned. They had inside intelligence. Now, where that came, f- came from is debatable. It might have come from the UN civvy side. They were trying to encourage, to bully Chombe to get rid of his mercenaries. That was the, that was the objective at this stage. Now, something might have been let, let, let slip. But what had happened after rum punches, all of the mercenaries ceased to wear uniforms, just parade around in uniform, uh, uh, prior to that, but they stopped. They they were able to. They, they knew from what happened at Rum Punch what the objectives would have been. All the vital installations, the radio college, the, uh, the radio Katanga, the post office at this stage. And what they had done is they'd stashed weapons in the vicinity of those, and they had mercenaries that could tr- blend into the population, move around freely around the city, and be there when 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 Hajor happened at this stage. Um, from the point of view of the battalion commander for for um, Operation Martyr, he had his A company detached. They were gone to Jadaville, plus two of his armoured cars uh, from the armoured car group. Two of his armoured cars were, were put under command to the Swedes, and three, as Dick said, were, were under command to the Indian, two Indian battalions at this stage. Mm-hmm. So he, he, was, he, was, he was down a lot of his combat power at this stage. So essentially, with the mercenaries operating in civilian attire, what you ended up was urban guerrilla warfare in Elizabethville. Staged, as we called it, fighting in a build-up area. And you didn't know who your enemy was. And they were prepared and they're ready to do it. And in addition to that, it wasn't just the paid mercenaries, including the, the serving Be- Belgian military personnel, but also what you had was the, the, the white settlers. They joined in. They were, all of those were military trained. So why were they fighting? They weren't fighting for Chamba or for Katanga. They had, they had a style of living. Most of these would have come from the Congo post-World War II in the 40s and the 50s. They were working for the mining company. Their allegiance was to the mining company because that ensured their standard of living, their way of life. So, so that was the greatest motivation for them. So it was a different, very much a different ball game uh, when, when, when Martyr kicked off. Uh, so do you want to go back to Dick to take it from there? Yeah, as I said, from the Irish perspective, the important operation here was um, at the tunnel, a real critical terrain uh, in the urban environment. C Company took the tunnel, but C C Company also had another task assigned to them by the battalion, and that was to secure, hold and control the uh, radio college. Now, thinking of an era when broadcasting from major stations were how you got to talk to the people. And Radio Katanga was effectively a propaganda tool for the Chambe regime. So that had been targeted. That was an Indian battalion uh, uh, problem. 
The other area was the uh, telephone network and the communications that were in the post office, another uh, task for the Indian Battalion. But the one communication location that was given to the Irish to resolve was this place called the Radio College. It was uh, run by the Marist Orders. It was a place for training uh, people for uh, as radio technicians, etc. And it had a capability. And the UN identified the radio college as someplace that it, it might, might be used by them as it was subsequently. So that was the focus. The Irish assigned a, a platoon to the operation under um, uh, Tom Ryan. That platoon ends up going to the day, on the day, securing the college, break their way into it and set themselves up. But in time, that group ends up with, I think it's 11 personnel is Tommy Ryan and 11 personnel of his platoon is now in the radio college, securing the radio college. And um, they had gone to the radio college in their uh, instruction and in the appreciation of their task, they were given to believe that they would be, um, they'd be relieved at about 1,100 hours. That was what they they believed. They had no radio communications. They were told that they were so close to the tactical headquarters that was close by in Park Albert that they could have they could maintain contact if they needed or make inquiries by using a runner to the um, the, the runner being a, a, an army expression covering the an individual who'd go. Uh, physically and make contact. So C Company, uh, very focused on the tunnel and protecting the tunnel and and defending it, and the radio college uh, where Tommy Ryan was. You can see where the difficulty is going to arise. They have no real uh, means of communication, no radio communication. Another element of C Company at the bridge, uh, at the tunnel area, was there was a requirement to send out a patrol for liaison and uh, resupply purposes from the the tunnel. This was taken under command of a person by the name of Sergeant George Shocknessy. And uh, he had two vehicles and uh, they set out at about midday uh, from the tunnel to uh, complete their assignment. As they passed the local football stadium, uh, they were ambushed. And in that process, the first killed in action casualty of the uh, 35th Battalion was a trooper Gaffney, who was the driver in the, of the truck that uh, was commanded by uh, Sergeant Shocknessy. Effectively, they were ambushed on the main street in front of the stadium. And sorry, sorry, was that the first contact of Operation Martyr that Irish troops had come under? Was that the first time they'd come under fire during the operation? Or No, no. Um, a feature of the morning, once the operation took off, shortly after it took off, there was all across Elizabethville the network of support from white settlers and gendarmerie. They put UN positions under fire uh, and harassing them by sniper fire, etc. That was kind of going on in dribs and drabs all over the city. They, this was the first time that the UN were taking casual, had taken casualties. And by the way, when his patrol went out, he again had no communication uh, with his headquarters, and they were not aware of the fact that he that he had been ambushed. 
they'd subsequently discovered about an hour or two later when he didn't meet up with some of the people he should have met up with, his patrol was missing. It took him about six hours to late into the evening to make his way to different locations, UN secure locations, and eventually didn't get back to their camp until that evening. Along the way, one of his patrol was uh, wounded in, uh, in another engagement. So the Irish are starting to receive, uh, to take casualties in uh, Elizabethville. Just the first shots fired by the Irish were, were, were probably at the, simultaneously at the post office and at Radio Katanga. And that but the they, armor, they're under command to the, the Indians. Indians. The Indians, yeah. yeah. But they were the first Irish to be engaged and that at, at 0400 they, they, they opened fire and, yeah. and, that, and, and they were the big conflicts. But. As this is happening... Jadaville comes back into the picture. From early morning, there was uh, Jadaville was under attack, and it informed the battalion headquarters of its situation. And the battalion headquarters, while running the operation of the two companies uh, in Elizabethville, started to think and and plan and and realize that the Jadaville situation was no uh, part of their uh, priority, and in a sense the focus went off of um, what was happening down at the tunnel, or indeed, certainly, the focus went off the uh, radio college. Um, the radio college only comes back into play in and around uh, later in the afternoon when a UN VIP who was scheduled to make a radio broadcast and did make a radio broadcast from the uh, facility in the radio college, um, he came along with a, a Swedish officer, uh, a chap by the name of Von Bayer. And um, this was the first time anybody had contacted Tommy Ryan's elements in the radio college. And at this stage, remember, they thought they'd be relieved earlier in the morning, 1100. Now, this is well into the late afternoon. Uh, they've had no food. And because of some uh, security threats that they had, they had expended some ammunition up to this point. And in conversation with uh, the UN VIP and von Bayer, the Swedish officer, they asked them to give assistance. The UN VIP was a very dismissive of them and uh, said, I'm not your messenger, boys. And Tommy Ryan was particularly uh, annoyed at that. Van Baer went away uh, when the, they had finished their job there, but later he came back and dropped some ration packs for uh, Ryan. But in the process, he told Ryan that, um, oh, sorry, uh, Ryan, who thought he had contact nearby in the uh, Park Albert, didn't realize it until um, Van Baer came back to him to say, the elements that were in Park Albert early in the morning had received some incoming fire and they dispersed. So there was nobody out there that uh, Tommy Ryan could contact. He was very definitely in his own. And this is into the late afternoon of the 13th. And the battalion also was in a, a cleft stick. They knew there was somebody out there, but they had no way of getting to him because uh, the transport and the focus was going on preparing and dispatching the Force KN1, which was the force that was to offer assistance to the people in Jadaville. So Force um, KN is dispatched in the late afternoon, and it gets to the it gets to the Lafira, and it's caught at the Lafira uh, just as last light. Effectively, they 
tried to remove the obstacles that were on the bridge, all mm-hmm. conducted under fire, the Irish armoured cars and APCs, and uh, didn't manage to do so, then withdrew and uh, set themselves to continue the operation at first light the following day. So that's what's happening out at the Lafira. The Lafira, sir, for, for our for list, that will be the river, the is, river is separating. The, the Lafira Bridge is over the Lafira River, mm-hmm. um, about, what, uh, 15 kilometres from uh, Jadeville, um, and maybe probably an hour, an hour and a half, an hour driving, an hour and a half driving from... Um, but, but 110 kilometres from Elizabethville. So the situation at the, at the evening of the 13th of uh, September is that... All companies have been engaged. Now we're at the at night and the things go... This was in the day when there's no uh, night vision equipment or anything of that nature, so everybody held their own overnight. Tommy Ryan, somebody was thinking about him and the battalion log shows that the battalion sought to to withdraw the patrol but weren't allowed to do so by the higher headquarters that they weren't allowed to w- withdraw uh, Ryan's patrol. So now... and. That situation is the situation at 0100 hours on the on the 14th. At about first light that morning, back out at the Lufira, the uh, Force KN1 tries again to br- break through the obstacle of the uh, Lufira Bridge. They attacked and whatever, but over the next few hours, despite major expenditure of ammunition and uh, effort on their part, it was not possible to dislodge the uh, the gendarmerie or remove the obstacle on the bridge. So eventually Force KN1 was withdrawn at about uh, mid-morning, about somewhere after 10 o'clock or thereabouts. They withdrew back to uh, Elizabethville. It was the major effort of the battalion at that point. Meantime, back now to Elizabethville and looking at the radio college with Ryan at the radio college. Early that morning, he's approached by uh, a civilian and uh, offered some food. They had no rations up to this point, and um, other than what uh, the pack that they got from uh, Von Bayer. And the civilian gave them food and they were very thankful for it. Later, the people came back to collect the containers that they had brought the food in, collect them from them, and there was a, they were accompanied by a male. And this guy, this turned out to be a gendarmerie officer, and in this case, a French officer thought to be one of the mercenaries. And um, he, got, he engaged with Tommy Ryan. Tommy Ryan said he should really be arresting him, but in, in the d- discussion that they had, the mercenary uh, said to them that they were completely surrounded. And Tommy Ryan thought to call his bluff, and, uh, but the, on a signal from the mercenary officer, a platoon plus of individuals to be seen with all heavily armed and against the 11 that, uh, and the level of armament that Ryan had, Ryan could see that he was surrounded, outnumbered, and outgunned, and didn't have the ammunition resources to fight the situation. So the mercenary, having displayed all this equipment, then demanded that uh, Ryan surrender, and Ryan 
He gave him a very short notice to do so. Ryan had a quick discussion with his men and he saw he was outnumbered and he agreed and they agreed. There were some uh, people who said they should fight it out, but he, he took it on him as his responsibility to surrender. So uh, late morning, this is the point at which the first, there is 11 Irish personnel now prisoners of war in Katangan custody and they were moved on from there. The battalion had no knowledge of this. Battalion's focus is still up on, on communication to Jadaville and to the elements at the Lufira. Later that evening, the battalion gets uh, an inkling of what's happening. Somebody must have observed what had happened at the radio college and a message filters through to the battalion that effectively the Irish at the radio college have been taken prisoner. And the battalion had very limited resources. It's, eventually it uh, scrambled together a patrol with four vehicles, one armoured car, one what they called uh, an APC, but was effectively a Ford armoured car without a turret, um, a Willys jeep and a, an armoured car, a Ford armoured car. And that was cobbled together in a patrol. And the patrol came under the command of Commandant Cahillan, who was effectively the OC of the armoured car group. And this patrol eventually got together and at 2100 hours left the camp to find out what was happening at the radio college. It had a particular mission, which I'll come to in a moment. But before, just before it left camp, it was advised by the person who had been the assistant um, inter officer, he advised that the information they had received to be aware of the fact that the patrol had been taken prisoner. So they were heading towards the uh, radio college with that knowledge. But their task was to recover Gaffney's body, which uh, hadn't been recovered to this point. They were also supposed to uh, well, first to get to the radio college and find out what was happening at the radio college, recover Gaffney's body, and to check at one of the major logs bases that, that was of concern to the 35th Battalion. And the patrol takes off. Remember, this is by night, vehicles by night in, in an urban environment. And when they approached the radio college, there was a silence. Cahillan was the patrol commander. He was in the lead armoured car. His uh, driver was a, a Sergeant Carey, and the gunner operator and radio operator were a Corporal Nolan and a Trooper Mullins. So that's the four people in the armoured car. That's ambushed at the radio college. And the driver, Carey, tries to get out the back of the car. He pulled Cahillan out with him. They were all very much stunned by the by the impact of the, the round, and Carey pulled Cahillan out the back of the car over the prostrate bodies of Nolan and uh, Mullins, whom they thought to be dead. There was a scramble to get into some housing nearby, and the rest of the patrol now came under fire as well. There, they, there was, a, um, as I said, a Willys jeep, a bus, an armoured car, and the APC all scrambling now to get into a building, which they did. 
Uh, just to clarify, sir, the, 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 it must have been a large projectile that, that hit the armoured car to, to cause the personnel inside to be stunned. Well, it penetrated. Uh, it was just an anti-armoured projectile. We, we don't know yeah. uh, exactly what it was, but it obviously uh, stunned the people in the car. Two, uh, Corporal Nolan and Trooper Mullins, were obviously uh, knocked out to such an extent that they were considered dead by uh, Carey as he scrambled over them, pulling um, Cahillan, who was uh, totally deafened by it all, dazed and deafened uh, uh, by the impact on the, on the vehicle. As they, as they scrambled to get into a nearby house, uh, Carey, Sergeant Carey, is uh, badly wounded in the thigh by shrapnel. And he now needed medical attention, but when they got into the house, they put a tourniquet on him and they were now holed up in the house. So all of this action is taking place with no knowledge of this action happening or with no knowledge of it by the, by the battalion headquarters. This is all happening in isolation. They get into the house, they, they organize themselves in the house, they organize the, the defense of their location. Uh, now they are aware that their ammunition is in very short supply because the reserve ammunition in their scrambling to get in was left on the, uh, on the bus. So after about midnight, Cahillan decides that he, he looks for uh, volunteers, they, for somebody to get the message back to battalion headquarters. And uh, a Captain White and a Sergeant Dignam volunteered to, to do so. So somewhere after round midnight, they escape from the situation and they make their way cross-country or however, by their own means, to the battalion headquarters. They arrived at the battalion headquarters at uh, about 0400. And this is the first time that the battalion now confirms what happened to the Cahillan patrol and is the first time that they know that they have confirmed that uh, Ryan platoon or the Ryan group is uh, prisoners as well. In the process, the battalion is, was given the uh, information that there were two killed in the armoured car and that there was two wounded in action, Carey and uh, Cahillan. Um, the battalion, this is 400, at about 0500 or just coming up to first light, the battalion uh, organised a patrol to go out and try and get an update on that position. In the process, patrol went out and came back but it, uh, and reported nothing to report. But it's obvious that they never, from later information, it's obvious they never got to the uh, radio college. They may have gone to some other um, radio, radio Katanga or otherwise, but they never uh, got to the radio college. They reported NTR. So the battalion had, oh, the only information the battalion had was that provided by White and, and Dignam. But later events would tell us no, the information that I'm talking about now was not available at that time, but it became uh, available later when all the prisoners came back later in September. Uh, that while they were holed up, when White and Dignam had left, some people 
heard the armoured car start up and drive off. Along the way, it uh, made a wrong turning and somewhere near a gendarme position near Chambay's house, the uh, armoured car went off the road when it was trying to turn. It realised it had taken a wrong turning. And sir, was this the armoured car that had been previously hit? This is the armoured car that had been hit. Yeah. So one of the, the casualties who were in it must, be, must have driven it. Yeah. When they got to this location, these, the later events now tell you this story, or we have the information on that, which was that the armoured car went to, uh, drove away, took a wrong turning, ended up in an area close to Chambay's house. It, in its endeavour to turn, it um, got uh, stuck in a drainage uh, ditch, and in the process... It then came under fire and was attacked at that point. And the only two people who could have been in it were Mullins and Nolan. We don't know who's driving. But when the patrol was eventually, or when they came to looking for Mullins and, and found this vehicle, they discovered that there was a lot of 9mm rounds near the, uh, the, the vehicle. So there was some firefight went on by who Mullins and Nolan, or Mullins or Nolan, at that the point where the uh, car had ditched into the uh, the drainage channel, but that's the last. Witnesses later would verify that the there was a, a an action at the car and that the gendarmerie attacked the car and uh, killed the people there. No further information available, other than much later it transpires that Nolan's body was found and buried, but no knowledge of uh, Mullins. So Mullins gets, Mullins and Nolan very quickly get posted as missing in action. And so, sir, at this point we find ourselves in a position where the armor car has driven, has driven off and what subsequently transpired with the discovery of Corporal Nolan's body at a later date and, 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 and the the fact that Trooper, Trooper Mullins' body has, has never been discovered. What, what happens next during the operation? What's the next phase? Well, to finish with the Cahillan patrol, uh, we're now into, is it the 15th? And the Cahillan patrol are isolated in the, uh, the, the college. A priest comes to them in the morning and uh, tells them that, well, you're surrounded and there is there's a heavy presence of gendarmerie. The, the, the priest then, they get Sergeant Cario to a hospital. Yeah. He's evacuated, so he, he, he is a, an arterial bleed in his leg. He's lucky to be alive. He, yeah. he's on he, is, yeah. uh, he comes in, he shows good faith. The, the priest shows good faith by getting Cary to the hospital. And, uh, but in the same time then, he comes back to tell the uh, Cahillan uh, what his situation is vis-à-vis how he's surrounded by the gendarmes. And he eventually brings along uh, a gendarme officer, mercenary again, which is thought to be mercenary, who comes back to tell them that they, he is surrounded. Calan is left with, do I fight here or whatever, uh, but the nature of what was available and what was, um, and the threat that came to him, he felt once Kerry had got to safety, that they became the second lot of, they surrendered to the uh, gendarmerie and uh, they went into captivity at that point. 
Meantime, of course, the battalion has no knowledge of what's happening in the radio college. The battalion is focusing on organizing the second force to go to Jadaville, now called Force KN2. And this is um, effectively the elements of B Company who are providing, the, it's a kind of a, a two-company strength uh, operation. One uh, from the battalion B Company and one uh, company from the uh, Indian battalion. And they take off. to Now, to move that force... Battalion transport was very bad. They commandeered uh, 16 buses to bring that force to Jadaville, supported by armoured cars. Is it two, uh, two Fords and two Swedish uh, Two Fords and uh, assistance uh, from the Swedes. The Swedes had a, a kind of a, an APC. So that's the resources that are going to force KN2. And to, to muster this group and get permission to deploy, they, there was all pulling and dragging rather. They got a late start and they eventually got about 6.30 in the morning is their uh, deployment date out of Elizabeth, or time out of uh, Elizabethville up to uh, Jadaville. And again, of course, uh, come to the Lafira. But reading the accounts that are provided by Squadron Sergeant Desi uh, Keegan, he talks about this force going up to the bridge. And actually, he, he claims they were kind of engaged by fire before they got to the uh, bridge area. And um, that the the Lafira Bridge w- had been reinforced after the unsuccessful attempts by Force KN1. The importance of the bridge is known, and they have reinforced that area. Uh, now, but there's a stronger uh, relief force, as I say, two company strength uh, with armoured car support coming up to, uh, to do so. And... Um, it didn't make any impression. It, it, they they came to the bridge. They fought at the bridge. They uh, endeavoured to deploy. The Indians tried to force a crossing at a, another railway bridge or something nearby that eventually gets destroyed by the uh, gendarmes. So despite all their efforts, again, it becomes unsuccessful. That was bad news relayed back to the battalion headquarters. And also it was bad news for what was to happen subsequently to Commandant Quinlan's company in Jadaville. There is a fault in this second patrol in as much as it's still called Force Kane 2. Kane is in charge of it. A company or B company has its company commander in charge of it. And the Indian, but there was, there, it was difficult to coordinate two different uh, approaches to fighting and manoeuvre. However, uh, they used their forces and however they used the armoured car, it didn't change the situation. They mm-hmm. didn't get through the bridge. Now, that position became so important. Uh, sometime later, it, in 1963, there was another uh, effort to take that bridge. And in that occasion, it was an Indian brigade supported by Irish armour and including 120 millimetre mortars, etc., with engineers and air power, then they got through at that uh, place. But that's just the contrast. The full potential of a light infantry uh, force to try and force the bridge was a non-runner, really. You want to comment on that, George? It is, and it's worth mentioning that the 
on the way to Lefira Bridge and at Lefira Bridge, yes. the that that's the, the two companies they come under attack from the air from the Fuga. Mm-hmm. And in the in the attack, there was a med- an Irish medical corps sergeant and four privates from B Company badly wounded in the attack. They were firing rockets and machine guns, and the Indian company they suffered three killed and five wounded, actually at Lefira Bridge, and then as the patrol uh, that. Uh, Force K2 were, were, were called back to Elizabethville just on the outskirts of Elizabethville to a place called Seven Springs it was a nightclub and at that location they were ambushed and the one of the Indian trucks a pickup truck went off the road and they had mortar ammunition that exploded so their total there was another there was two killed in that and about another dozen wounded from the Indians so it was a very very costly operation and, and like as Dick said early on there there was a great valiant attempt to get across but it failed just, just the best, the best superior opposition on the ground and from the air as well. Yeah, yeah. So at this stage, they now know that Jadaville, to relieve Jadaville, they, they have been unable to uh, relieve or support uh, Jadaville. So they uh, have to get into negotiation mode. And so the, there's a kind of um, a lull in the, in the tempo of uh, activities. But the the reality is, at the, the this is the almost the end of mortar. You have a company up in Jadaville, uh, isolated, and as we know now, subsequently forced to um, uh, surrender. We have already lost two patrols in uh, two patrols taken prisoner in uh, Elizabethville. And an unsuccessful, two significant uh, operations to relieve uh, Jadaville be, to be unsuccessful. So um, it was time for negotiation, but there was uh, other uh, activities. You talk about um, the Hammerschold uh, thing, uh, the loss of Hammerschold at this point. Uh, Dag Hammarskjöld, the UN Secretary General, had arrived on the 13th, the day actually Operation Martyr kicked off. And that was his fourth visit to the uh, to the Congo. Now, you can imagine in the period from independence, the end of June 1960 up to September, four visits. Like, he, he was a hands-on man and he went out on the ground. And he, through the American and British diplomatic channels, he was trying to get to Chombe to have a meeting. And Chombe was having nothing, first of all, at this stage. But the... The fighting kind of was, was going, going nowhere. It was stalemate, really, at this stage. So Chombe agreed that he would meet with Hammarskjöld in northern Rhodesia at an airport called Indola, just inside the border of northern Rhodesia. And on the night of the 17th, uh, Hammarskjöld and a party of people headed off there. And in the early hours of the morning of the 18th, that plane crashed. Now, over the last six decades, there have been all kinds of inquiries as to how this was brought down at this stage. But there's no conclusive proof has been uh, been produced, no conclusive evidence that it wasn't actually brought down. There's been one Belgian man who had f- flown with the RAF during the Second World War. He claimed he shot it down, but there's nothing really conclusive at this stage. That was really a game changer. Now, the Secretary General, who had come to kind of make peace in the Congo, he was dead at this stage, you know. So the negotiations that were planned did go ahead in Ndola in northern Rhodesia. And the man that took charge on behalf of the UN was a man called Mahmoud Kiari. He was a Tunisian. He was the number two civilian in the hierarchy 
He was the man in charge. He was the director of civilian operations in the Congo. And first of all, Chamba's approach was, okay, what I want now at this stage is uh, I want UN out of Katanga. That's his old story. That was unachievable at this stage. Kiari played the card, I'm an African, you're an African, let's talk. It's a down and talk. So eventually there was an agreement that came in, a ceasefire came into effect uh, as of midnight on the 20th of September. Foremost in the, uh, that then led to protocols were signed again by, by Chombe and Kiari in October, about the middle of October, after protracted negotiations. The priority for the UN was to get the release of the prisoners, the hostages that had been taken. Uh, and there was a price to pay for that at this stage. So when that came in, the protocols provided, first of all and foremost, the exchange of prisoners of war. At that stage, the UN held about 240 gendarmerie and uh, civil police, Cactonese uh, civil police at this stage. So there was a kind of a false dawn. The plan was there would be an exchange on the 16th of October in Elizabethville. That came to nothing. It did actually take place then on the 25th of October, and 190 UN captives were released at the old airport in Elizabethville. And the 190 included um, three civilians, two of them Irish, <coughs> Irish workers for the UN, one Norwegian, two Swedes, and 184 Irish. There was 28 that had been captured in Elizabethville, including the, the, the Rhine Guard and the Radio College, the Cahillan Patrol, and other, other three other officers and two civilians that had, had tried to do a reconnaissance of the Camp Massard, which was the gendarmerie camp in Elizabethville, the, in around the 16th of October when there was to be the exchange. So you had 156 from the Jadaville uh, garrison plus 28 from Elizabethville have been captured. And the price to pay that you went to pay for that is, is that the clock was put back to the 12th of September, the day before Operation Martyr had commenced. And the UN had to vacate all of the, the, the positions that it occupied uh, in, in, um, inside in Elizabethville. Uh, it was a big price to pay, but, but it was worth it, really. For the, the, the prisoners were released and A Company re re rejoined. The, um, just to quote you some figures of the total casualties that were inflicted across Katanga province. Now, remember, there was a bit of fighting went up in the northeast of the province in Sector A, particularly in Minono. But the total number of UN uh, killed at the time, you had 17 killed and 56 wounded. Three of those were Irish. All three, Gaffney, Nolan and, and, uh, and Mullins were killed in Elizabethville. You had 30 wounded. Three of those were wounded uh, in Kamina Base in Sector C, um, members of the 1st Infantry Group. You had five that I mentioned that were wounded at Lefira Bridge. You had five wounded in Jadaville, three of them were wounded, two had gunshot wounds, one had mortar shrapnel, one had, um, I suppose we call it post-traumatic stress disorder, they call it shell shock at the time, and the other lad was wounded, he was flying rock, given bruised his shoulder, contusions of the shoulder. The other 17 were, were wounded in the fighting in Elizabethville, and that puts the, I, meant, I, I said it was the epicentre of everything that happened, that's, that's why Elizabethville was important. Uh, so at that stage, the protocol started to kick in, but um, Chamba was playing for time at this stage. He wasn't, he, he wasn't you know, he, his objective was to get the UN out of Katanga. And that fed in then to the, the, um, 
the operations that that started in uh, they ramped up the 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 problem in December we led the 36 incoming battalion uh, they faced into a, a, an actual raging war fighting in Elizabethville I think it's important to make the point that the battalion staff had been very much uh, stripped out because we mentioned the Katanga Command, we mentioned the Sector B headquarters. There was no staff provided for this. Sector B was manned by officers that were taken from the Swedish Battalion and the Irish Battalion. And from very early on there, the, the Battalion Operations Officer was taken as, oper as the Sector Operations Officer. The Battalion Legal Officer was taken out as the, uh, the, the Sector Adjutant. The Signals Officer was taken out as the Sector Signals Officer. The battalion assistant I.O. was taken out as the, the I.O. Of, of the sector. And even the 2ICF headquarter company, that captain was taken out for another appointment, and some NCOs were taken out. So nowadays we're very used to having joint operations centres and shift directors and watch keepers. But the battalion was, not only that, but at an earlier stage, the battalion commander had been uh, taken into the force headquarters at Leopoldville, and he was put into an appointment dealing with refugees. So the 2IC, uh, Hugh McNamee, was, was promoted to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel and made Battalion Commander. And, and the IO, who was uh, Commandant Johnny Kane, he becomes the 2IC of the battalion, the operations officer of the battalion, and the IO. Yeah. So like the, the ability of the, of, of the uh, battalion to function, the battalion sta headquarters staff to function, was very, very limited, and particularly to, ru to, to run over a protracted period of time over a number of days. It was very, very difficult for them. It's, it seems to follow a theme sort of kind of that the, that the battalion found itself lacking in resources and lacking in, lacking in personnel that it, that it should have had on a regular basis, both at a tactical level and then at a staff level and the headquarters level and, 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 and because of what you've, what you've outlined there. Yes, that's correct, yes. Um, I suppose to go on sort into, into later later efforts with regard to, to the location of Trooper Mullins's body and later efforts to, to, to try and locate that. Um, would you be able to outline for, for us how, how that how that has how that has gone over the years? Yeah, well, uh, the first off was that uh, he Mullins and Nolan uh, and, and Gaffney were uh, killed and. Really, recovering the body was, bodies was an afterthought. It was particularly uh, because of the intensity of the operation that uh, was ongoing in Elizabethville. Um, so much so that even what I described earlier in the story about what happened at the post office and the Cahillan patrol and all that sort of thing, that, that hadn't, wasn't clear to everybody. But when the ceasefire occurred, and the uh, units who had been on detached under command to the Indians and the cavalry units detached under command to the, the cavalry uh, armored sections who were detached under command to uh, uh, B and C company, they came, uh, they, uh, their attachment um, finished and they came back and they came back to their base. This was the point at which Art McGuinness, who had been the 2IC of the, uh, of the group, was now uh, effectively the um, armor car group, uh, acting armor car group commander, and he started asking questions. What happened? Uh, this was the point. Uh, and, and even before the prisoners were returned, Art McGuinness had started a process of 
trying to get answers in respect of um, what really had happened down at the radio college. And it was new to him. So although uh, not quite new to him, but he, he, he was driven to find the answer. And as a consequence, he said, shortly after he came back, I think it was on the... Um, uh, on the about the 21st of September, he, he with um, uh, Captain Mark Carl and Captain Lawless, Frank Lawless, and the squadron sergeant uh, Carl, uh, with uh, Commander, uh, Captain Art McGuinness, they went out to, to drive the, the route that they thought Kyle and Patrol had followed. And lo and behold, when they got to the radio college, there on the road in front of the radio college were the destroyed uh, three vehicles, the bus, turretless armoured car and the Willys Jeep. They were destroyed there. This was the point at which the armoured car was missing. And I told you what had happened. Um, uh, they weren't to discover that again until the POWs uh, came back. They, they couldn't answer the question as to how the armoured car was missing. Later, uh, as part of their investigation, again, all run by uh, Art McGuinness, they put out feelers and they were told where there was a, an APC or where there was a, a car abandoned. And that's the point at which they went and they discovered uh, this down near the Gendarmerie headquarters at uh, near um, Chambes residence. And no bodies were found there either. So over time... It, it took some time for uh, a nun provided information about the possibility that there was a, a UN soldier buried somewhere and they uh, went to that place. They'd found uh, Nolan's body and was identified as Nolan's body, but no, um, no remains were found for uh, Mullins. And that's exactly what happened. They, despite his best efforts, and it was something that, uh, Art McGuinness was very committed to in his in a lifetime's work thereafter to focus on resolving the issues around uh, Mullen's death and the fact that he was missing in action. And uh, when the battalion came home in December uh, of that year and the battalion commander and Art McGuinness made a point of going to the uh, next of kin of all those who had been uh, killed in the battalion. That would be uh, Gaffney, Mullins and Nolan. That was a hard job to do over the Christmas period of, uh, that, uh, of 1961. And really, that ended the Mullins story, except that... There was an effort made. Uh, he, he, Mullins was a loss, missing in action, uh, this new phenomenon, um, as far as the Irish uh, Army, were, uh, Irish Defence Forces were concerned. Uh, here we were dealing with a, a missing in action casualty. We had two of them. Or sorry, we totally had two, now down to one, distinct. And the unit in Formoy set about remembering him, driven by the fact that more than half of the armoured car group actually were members of the 1st Motor Squadron, whose base was Formoy. And uh, Sergeant Kerry, who had been 
uh, wounded in the uh, radio college. He uh, he had retired uh, when he shortly after he came home, and then he there, there was a move afoot to uh, erect a memorial in the Garrison Church in Formoy to um, to Trooper Mullins. That memorial was actually uh, in wood and uh, made and uh, the by Sergeant Carey, who was a wood turner by trade. And uh, that was erected in Formoy. So uh, as a second lieutenant, lieutenant in Formoy, and indeed captain subsequently, uh, we were aware of uh, Trooper Mullins. And because so many had served with him, um, his memory just didn't fade. And there was this monument or this uh, memorial plaque in the garrison church to him and that existed the squadron all went on until 1998 1998 during uh, restructuring of the army the uh, first cavalry squadron was withdrawn from Formoy and it moved to cork in the process the camp uh, became unoccupied and the garrison church was given to the um, to the local uh, parish. And unfortunately, uh, a few years later, somewhere 2002, 2003, I think, um, in uh, refurbishing the, gar what, the, the, the uh, parish, um, in refurbishing the garrison church to, uh, it removed the, um, Mullins Memorial, and uh, that set on set in trail a campaign uh, to ensure that Mullins wasn't being forgotten, and that was undertaken by the um, uh, ex squadron uh, personnel who were living in Formoy. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they got very agitated about it and crossed swords with the Minister of Defence of the time um, who uh, made some strange uh, statements about um, uh, the missing in action casualties of the Defence Forces, uh, an uninformed statement. And um, so in the controversy that was there in respect of the removal of the memorial from the church, the garrison church, um, the parish priest in Kilbenny, where the Mullins came from and where the Mullins family were very respected uh, as members of that uh, community, he said, erect the memorial in our, uh, in the parish church in Kilbenny. And that happened in about 2003 and um, but after that uh, there was a lot of indications that even the defense forces had forgotten about Mullins and uh, this uh, this annoyed the um, community of ex-squadron personnel who had served Mullins and a campaign w was initiated by those ex-members of the squadron in Formoy and a local journalist, and a campaign was um, initiated to 
have the state do something about Mullins. Up to this point, there, Mullins' name is on the plaque at the foot of the grave in Glasnevin, but uh, there are those, but he's not in the grave. Mm -hmm. He's the missing in action casualty. And out of this process, uh, and a very sustained campaign, the state eventually um, conceded something. The defense forces organized a board under uh, what was then uh, uh, Colonel Packenham at the time. And uh, he was assisted by, um, is it Commandant Richardson and uh, Commandant Lang of the archives. And they they were forced to review the whole process of uh, what had happened, Mullins, and to bring to a conclusion, a definitive conclusion, um, as best they could, where his remains were and how, he was, how his remains were disposed of. And uh, they produced a very satisfactory report, which was delivered in person to the family by the uh, uh, board president, uh, Colonel... Um, uh, Colonel Packenham, I think he was then the GOC in the South, and uh, as a consequence of that, and, and as a recommendation of that board, the state erected its first memorial to a missing in action casualty of the defence forces in Kilbenny on the uh, with the approval of the uh, parish priest. Uh, in, in Kilbenny, it was uh, erected in the um, in the grounds of the church, and that has become an annual uh, place of pilgrimage by a number of people, usually the veterans. Now, in declining numbers, um, uh, and that system or that uh, monument to. To Mullins, that was erected in the in the churchyard there, became uh, the model for remembering the other uh, casualty, Private Joyce, who was lost as a member uh, of the unit in uh, Lebanon, and in his place on the Iron Islands. Well, sirs, uh, thank you to uh, Colonel Carton and Colonel Heaslip for a fascinating account of the events surrounding Elizabethville. We really appreciate your time and for you coming on to the show. Thanks very much. Very welcome. You're welcome. This special episode of the Irish Defence Forces podcast constitutes my final outing as host as I prepare to deploy overseas on United Nations service. My position as host will be filled going forward by Captain Richard Byrne of the Defence Forces Press Office, and I'd like to wish Rich Richard all the very best in upcoming episodes and seasons into the future. For further information on the Irish Defence Forces, check out our social media channels and military.ie. Serving members are also encouraged to check out the members area of military.ie. The Irish Defence Forces podcast is available on Spotify, Acast, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Corporal Keith Harrison and Sergeant Paul Keeley of the Defence Forces Audiovisual School. The Irish Defence Forces podcast will be back soon with new episodes. Until then, thanks very much for listening and stay safe.